Hi, this is April Mazza. And this is Christy Showman Fair. And this podcast is Overdue. Where friends and colleagues, librarians, librarians, and each episode we talk about books we're reading, things we're loving, and library advice we're giving. Good morning, April. Good morning, Christy. How are you? I'm good. It's good to see you today. Good to see you too. I feel like this was a special week because I got to see you in person. I know. It was awesome. Two days ago. <laughs> it was really good to see you. Um, so we were, uh, before we started recording, we were talking about the weather and that it's cold. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> like it's cold here. Yeah. It's supposed to be fall, <clears throat> but it's looking a little, it's Wintry. also windy out. Yeah. It's yes. blustery and cloudy. Um, I love the word blustery. It always reminds me of uh, of A. A. Milne. I was just going to say Winnie the Pooh. Yeah. <laughs> the blustery day. <laughs> yeah, that's where I learned it from. Well, speaking of books, do you want to start us off with what uh, book you want to talk about today? Absolutely. I read this week, actually, I read it so fast, um, this book called This Poison Heart by um, Kaylin Bayron. And I will say that I know exactly how to pronounce her name because I used the teaching books um, pronunciation website, which I will include in our show notes. I always worry about pronouncing people's names and there's this amazing tool. So Kaylin Bayron, um, This Poison Heart, it's a young adult book. Um, I learned about it because it is on the Massachusetts Teen Choice Book Award list. So um, it's the first year we've ever had a Teen Choice Book Award here in Massachusetts. It was started by uh, some local librarians and a committee read a ton of books and put together a list of 21 choices and then teens get to vote on their favorite. And so this title was on that on the list. And um, my good friend, Laura, who also is one of our patrons, listened to it, listened to the audiobook, and told me that I would love it. And so I actually got it in print um, just because it happened to be on the shelf when I went into the library one day. And Laura was right. I, I adored this book. It is just everything that I love in fiction. It's got an amazing main character. Um, Her name is Briseis, um, which is a name from the Iliad. And um, Greek mythology kind of infiltrates this whole story. Briseis is... uh, I think she's like 16, 17. She's a teen. She lives in Brooklyn with her two moms. And the moms own a florist. And Briseis has this ability that uh, plants respond to her when she's near them. They move toward her. Uh, they they like re- react to her emotions and she can actually also make plants grow really, really well. And she's never really done anything with the power because it's weird <laughs> and people <laughs> think of her as weird. She had admitted it to her friends once and her friends kind of backed away. So she doesn't really have a lot of friends. The story takes place in the summer and early on a, a lawyer shows up at their floor um, their florist and says that um, Briseis, who is adopted, that her birth family, um, somebody in the birth family died and left her an estate in Rhinebeck, New York. And so she and her moms decide to go there for the summer and see what it's like and whether or not they could have a new start there because, you know, things are tough in Brooklyn. Rents are increasing. It's really hard to keep their business open. And so they're using this opportunity this summer to have a new start. And they go to this estate that is out in the country. And Briseis, for the first time, has this ability to really let herself go with plants. And in the estate, she starts finding notes that are left to her with kind of a a puzzle to um, figure out 
um, information about herself and her birth family. And in the process, she finds this garden that has poisonous plants. And she is not, um, she is, well, I should back up. She is immune to poison, it seems. And that's all I'm going to tell you because (laughs) there's so much going on, so many layers, um, so many amazing characters. And um, Briseis is just fantastic. And I I think I may have said this on other episodes, but I really love when a a YA book has parents. Mm, mm Mm-hmm. Now, there, there's this period of time I felt like all YA books had absent parents. Either they never existed or they're on vacation or they're dead or they are just absent and not ever spoken about. So, And, and I get it. There's, there's a developmental need there, right? Teens mm-hmm. need to separate from their parents in order to grow and develop and find out who they are. But the reality is a lot of kids have parents around either like helping them do all of that or hindering them doing all of that. And so I find it very refreshing when there are parents involved. And and um, Briseis's parents are fantastic. I love them so much. <laughs> they just have a great relationship with each other and with, with um, Briseis. And I just really enjoyed the book. I looked forward to it every night. Uh, my husband often plays uh, video games with his friends in the evening. And I would be like, hey, are you playing tonight? <laughs> he was like, why? And I'm like, oh, oh, no reason. I just have a book I'm reading. I could go read that book. You could play. <laughs> so um, yeah, it was fantastic. And I, I texted Laura when I finished and um, was very excited about the book, but then also kind of sad because it leaves off on a cliffhanger. And I generally don't love series books. I prefer books that are standalones just because it's a commitment to read more books. Um, but she said that the sequel's already out and it is, it's called This Wicked Fate. And I found out that it's actually a duology. So there's only two books and I am very happy because I would love more of um, Briseis's life, but I don't know that I want five books. So right. um, yeah, I'm. it was amazing. I loved it. Okay. So what did you read? So the book I picked is called Skin of the Sea. It's also YA fantasy. So I think that's kind of Ooh. funny. There's similarity there. Um, it's by Natasha Bowen. And um, this book came out in 2021, which I think has a little bit of relevance because uh, the main character is a mommy Wata. That's a mother of the water. So she's basically a mermaid. Cool. And it's based on West African mythology. So also similar to your book. Um, but that makes her a black mermaid, which is relevant right now. <laughs> yes. I was just thinking about that. I was like, all you haters. There are black mermaids. Yep. And they're based on actual, you know, like mythology or religion, um, history. So, yep, there are black mermaids. And even if that wasn't true in mythology, it doesn't matter anyway, because okay. <laughs> uh, there are no mermaids. Fantasy. Um, <laughs> exactly. There. Wait, uh, wait, 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 wait. We don't. There might be mermaids. Okay. There might be, but we don't know what they look like and we don't know if they have a race or even a gender. (laughs) We're getting way off topic. Yes. Okay. Sorry. Sorry. I'll be quiet. Well, what I really love about (laughs) the mythology of mermaids is that there is this thought that sailors thought manatees were mermaids. And that just makes me happy. (laughs) That I don't know. Our lovely sea potatoes. Yeah, exactly. Maybe it was like the scurvy got to them or just the loneliness. But also they just, I was going to say, they love curvy women. Well, yeah. And that's the manatees, the ultimate 
<laughs> curvaceous creature of the sea. <laughs> but yeah, just all that to say, all that to say is, uh, you know, you can't make rules with this stuff. And it does relate back to my story too, because um, in the author's note, she does talk about like what inspired her to write this. Um, again, the author's Natasha Bowen. I don't know if I said that earlier, uh, but she was inspired by uh West African mythology, um, African history, and but she was inspired by. So she also, you know, made up her own story. She mm-hmm. took liberties with, um, with, you know, what she researched, and, um, and she she was a fan of the Little Mermaid, the the tale when she was younger. So this influenced her for her book. Anyway, so this story, um. The, in this story, the Mami Wata, they follow slave ships and they protect the souls of the kidnapped people that die at sea. So that's sort of like our opening scene yeah. is our main character, Simi, um, who is young. So she's like a teen, teenager mermaid. <laughs> and she is um, bringing, bringing a soul of a person who has died um, at, in the water and she protects that soul until it can go to the, the like supreme creator and uh, the sort of the crux of this story though is that she accidentally saves a living boy so they're not supposed to do that um, but she doesn't really know that because she's new to being a mermaid and also she can't just let him die right so she does save him um and then they end up teaming up because she gets into big trouble for that um, <laughs> with her, her um, sort of the God that she follows, sort of like her supervisor God. <laughs> I just love that idea of a supervisor God. It is. Well, and there's a bit of a hierarchy in the story too, which is very interesting. Um, but also, you know, just like other mythologies around the world. And so they end up teaming up together because they need to make amends uh, for this and they encounter other um, deities and mythical beings and like all these different kinds of creatures and uh, Simi also experiences these flashbacks so that kind of adds to like the mystery of her she has these memories and you're not quite sure like how did she become a mermaid because she used to be a girl she wasn't born a mermaid um, oh. And what was what was her life like? So it's sort of bits of this puzzle are coming together throughout the story. Um, and like I mentioned earlier, it's just it combines all these cool things like history, fantasy, uh, mythology, but also there's a little romance. So wouldn't it be a YA book, I think, without a little spark because um, she's falling for, uh, the, you know, the boy that she rescued. Which, of course, as we know from uh, The Little Mermaid, makes for a complicated relationship. <laughs> uh, so, and she she does have the potential to turn into sea foam, just like the Hans Christian Andersen tale. So, anyway, I just really loved it. It's beautifully uh, written. It's, it's just, like, really rich in details. It's this really epic kind of journey story. There's all these other characters that you know, become involved and, um, and it's got a really gorgeous cover, which I will show you. So this drew me in and later I'm going to talk about 
how I found out about the book because it's related to one of our other topics. But the cover, it's got like, you know, a beautiful image of this woman. There's gold and like water and ooh, sparkly. I love it. Ooh, your cover is really beautiful too. It's really similar. So I'm showing April the cover of my book too, which is very similar. And I think I might have neglected to say that the main character, Bryce Ace, as um, Bryceus is African-American. So um, we both have very similar covered books. Yeah. Wait, when we put them on Instagram. Yeah, that'll be so funny. Yeah, they are very similar. So yeah, I highly recommend that one. Definitely check it out. It sounds amazing. I'm adding it to my list. The ever-growing list. Oh, it's so big. <laughs> So I'm going to admit that I don't remember what our question is. So April, would you like to? <laughs> well, we were going to talk about diversity audit, but I don't know if you want to if you want to start us off. Sure. Yeah. Um. So one of the things that I've been doing over the last couple of years is helping libraries work through doing diversity and equity audits. And so what that is for those of you who are not actively working in a library, or even if you are and you don't know, is looking at your entire collection and seeing who is represented, who is telling the stories, like who is writing the books, and what areas are missing. So if you're looking at a particular subset of a collection, like picture books, who are the stories about? Um, you know, are there are they mostly about white children and animals? Um, are you missing stories about indigenous families? And so looking at those kind of details and it's a big process. You know, if you're looking at every book in your library, that could take months. And so I recommend taking a sample, um, looking at that sample, you know, not necessarily looking at every single aspect of identity, but rather identifying some that you think are more relevant or necessary for your community. Um, and so that could look like um, religion or um, gender and sexuality, or it could be socioeconomic status, which is a little hard to look at. That takes a, a little bit more time to you know, read through the stories. But there are so many different aspects that you could look at. And so um, I developed a workshop for libraries that I've been kind of taking around the state. And I did it an updated version on Friday in the town where April lives, which is why I got to see her. And so I you know, we, we talked about the need for audits where, you know, what the state of publishing is and, and what books are getting published uh, and then did a little bit of practice as well as discussion. And the discussion, um, unsurprisingly, centered a lot around book challenges. And, and that seems to be where we're coming at because, you know, looking at your collection as a whole to see what's in it also means then deciding that some books may not fit anymore or that you want to add other books. And I historically had talked about problematic books um, when it, with regard to like books that are, have not aged well and, you know, have terminology that is not okay or illustrations that are not culturally respectful. And um, actually one of the things that somebody pointed out was that that term problematic actually is a little problematic because now we have people who are are challenging books because they think that you know same-sex parents is problematic right so I'm going to try to like retool how I use the wording and you know kind of what kind of mm -hmm. vocabulary work I use um, in that area because I don't want to advocate to libraries to self-censor before right. they add books or to weed their pull titles out of their collection before people even challenge them. That's not that's not the goal of this. What we want to do is make sure that our collections are equitable. 
which means that, you know, not just reflecting your community, but rather balancing out the need. And, you know, historically, most of the stories have been about white people and cisgender and, you know, fairly wealthy, you know, within the stories and Christian within the United States. And so what are those areas that we haven't historically had enough on whether those representation, those, those identities, and those are the ones that we really want to focus on in adding to our collection. So yeah, there were a lot of good questions, but um, not always perfect answers. I, I answered a lot of it depends. <laughs> about like, you know, what do we do in this situation or how do we deal with this? And I was like, oh, it depends, <laughs> which right. is, it's, it's rough to, to answer that. But, um, but we did have a really amazing conversation. Oh, I think that's great. And I think, you know, while it wasn't necessarily like, this is a question we got from any of our uh, listeners or friends, it's, it's a topic that brings up a lot of questions, like you absolutely. Said. And how to deal with that when there isn't clear-cut answers and there never will be really like you said it kind of depends but the point is that there are tools out there so like people like you there's I'm a tool um, yeah (laughs) I didn't say that um but there's um and we can link to some of the resources. Yeah, on absolutely. But I know that there are, you know, blog posts and um, worksheets and things like that that people can use. And we do welcome your questions about this topic because, as Christy mentioned, it's really it does intertwine with book challenges, even though it's not not really the same thing. And it's not the point of doing this. The point of doing this is to make sure that your collection is inclusive and that you, you know, you haven't only, especially when you have materials that were purchased, you know, 30 years ago. And I think every public library has that, um, you know, what, what does that part of the collection look like? Mm -hmm. And is it still, you know, relevant? Like you said, is it outdated? Um, even just like the language and things. So, uh, my husband and I were we've been watching the um, A League of Our Own uh, reboot series. Oh yeah, that's on Prime, and it's really good. It's not it's not going to be my love for this episode, <laughs> just because I feel like I always talk about TV, but it's really really very good. Um, but they they used a word uh, when we were watching it last night, um, invert referring to one of the characters as an invert and we both looked at each other like I had to pause it and we both looked at each other like what does that mean like we kind of had an idea in context yeah um but I wanted to look it up anyway and just to say what was interesting is when I looked it up on online the the dictionary I forget which one it was um but whatever google comes up with first um you know, it had uh, like a standard definition, but then below it said uh, dated, you know, or outdated, something like that, invert, and it means gay, a gay person. And I just never had heard this term before. I mean, the like series just, the time period. Yeah, it takes place in the 40s. And I don't know if it was supposed to be like, was that, I don't know if that's a slur or if it was like a gentler form of um, saying it because they also use the word queer, but not in the way that it's used now where it's you know been sort of taken back and it's empowering it was it was used as a derogatory term so we didn't get like we didn't get that nuance from the um dictionary but just I appreciated that 
the dictionary had that yeah. listed as outdated. So it didn't pull the word, you know, didn't pull that definition necessarily because it was, that's not how it's used anymore. And it might be seen as, um, you know, a negative, mm-hmm. but, uh, or quote problematic, but it gives you the context of it, you know? And so we, it's a sort of the same when you're going through your collection, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to toss out, you know, everything, but you're looking at it as a whole collection exactly, and things that are outdated that could be harmful. Um, you, you know, you would want to reconsider, but then you want to add to it, like you were saying. So are all your, you know, we talked about picture books, are all your picture books about people of color, about their trauma? Right, exactly. Or are they all villains? Yeah, we don't want to have, you know, that be the only kind of representation in a in a collection. So in the the workshop that I do, we do we talk about the whole collection development like life cycle including like collection development policy, making sure you have a policy in place and a reconsideration plan. But then when it comes to looking at individual titles, um the, I I use these guiding questions I um borrowed from a school librarian named Erica Long who was um highlighted in a school library journal article um back when uh, the Dr. Seuss um, controversy was was happening. They they had a really good article. But so the guiding questions are, how does this help or harm the institution that I work in and the community that we are part of? Is this still relevant? And is this appropriate to where we are as a society and where we still need to go? And thinking about that for every book that you're trying to decide if we're going to keep it or not keep it, but also when you're selecting books too. Um, so I... I I like those because it it acknowledges that collections are not static. You know, yes. a, a library collection is not a warehouse of books. It is a carefully curated living collection that reflects your community and where you need to go. And um, so doing a diversity audit is a part of that. That's I think that's a perfect perfect explanation for that. <laughs> Um, and like I said, if people have questions around this topic or any other questions, we definitely want to hear from you. We'd love to. Yes. Uh, you can email us at thispodisoverdue at gmail.com. You can find us our website at podpage.com slash thispodcastisoverdue with hyphens between each word. You can follow us on Instagram, thispodisoverdue, and you can send us messages. We love messages. So April, you acknowledged that A League of Our Own was not going to be your love. So tell me, what did you love? Well, usually oh. talk about learning first. Oh no, but... I messed up. <laughs> but we could skip we to can. love if no, you want. No, 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 no. <laughs> uh, April, what are you learning about right now? Uh, well, I wanted to tell our listeners about someone I started following on Instagram. Her name is Zai Silla. But her Instagram is Zy Rambles, and of course, I'll link to that in our oh, show notes. Oh, I think you told me about her. I did because she's really cool. I think her from um, you know what I've seen so far, and she is a black actress based in London, um, and she recommends black films and books as a way of becoming an anti-racist ally. And that's how I heard about Skin of the Sea. So I had seen her talking about that on Instagram. She showed the cover 
you know, talked about the plot of the book and I was like, ooh, I really want to read this one. But she doesn't just recommend um, books and film. And I do have to say, I like that she does film too, because I think that's really interesting and sort of gives you a lot of content to think about. Uh, But she talks a lot about how empathy is built through these stories. Yes. Um, So whether you're watching movies or reading books. And she also talks about her own journey to this discovery. So, you know, as a Black person, she didn't necessarily think about this, you know, her entire life. Um, It kind of came to her recently how how reading more books by and about Black characters or other people of color or, you know, watching these films and sort of thinking about them critically um, helps her herself become anti-racist. And I just think that's really interesting and just how open she is. And I just also, I like her energy. She's Mm -hmm. just like really interesting to listen to and to watch. Um, She also runs a group that's sort of like a, it's a subscription membership. So I have to say I'm not a member, but, um, but I like the idea of it. It's the space where people can have discussion and make recommendations to each other. And there's like learning spaces. So she does. Oh, that's cool. These, yeah. She's done a few online workshops. One I watched was on how African mythology is linked to anti-racism. And I think you can still watch that free through her Instagram bio. So if you were interested in trying to find that. Um, and she also had one where she talked with an author who wrote about black tutors, not the homework kind. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> T-U-D-O-R. I knew that was going to come up because I pronounced and not it the something same. that toots. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not something that toots and not something that helps kids with homework. Um, but yeah, like I said, she's just like really interesting to listen to. She has great energy. She's really committed to sharing with people, just positive representation of black culture. Uh, And she does talk a little bit too, as I mentioned before, sort of like these trauma stories. Um, And she really has like a lot of grace around that where like, you know, they are important to, to watch or read about, but that shouldn't be the only kind of stories we have. And that if you are a person of color, you can take a break from that. Um, And, but like for white people, especially that could be an area where, you need you need to have a little more empathy and awareness you know understand the issues learn about maybe an event that you didn't know about and that's going to help you become an anti-racist ally so yeah definitely check her out she's really Sounds cool. amazing awesome what about you what have you been learning so i realized it uh, this one doesn't line up with apparently our evolving theme at all but um this week I actually, so backing up a little bit, I'm doing this class called Citizens Academy. It's in my town and um, it is every week for ever, not really, it's for like three months, every Thursday night. And uh, we learn about all the different departments in our town, what they do, how they do their work, and then their activities or, or kind of homework things that go with it. And the first ones um, were very much about you know, the government and finance. And um, I would say dry, but for a government nerd like me, super interesting. But um, this last week, we got to go to the fire department. And 
my inner child was so ecstatic. Um, I grew up in a family um, with a lot of fire um, professionals. And so I grew up going to a lot of fire departments, and but in California, and it was very different. And so I was just excited to be there and to ask questions and to hear all about this fire department that in an area where there are a lot of um, not professional full-time fire departments, um, this this, our town has been around since the 1830s. Um, and so, you know, back when they were using buckets to put fires out. But the thing that I wanted to share is they did a demonstration of the jaws of life. Oh, wow. I've never seen that. Yeah. yeah. So you probably know what the jaws of life are. They are, uh, it's a, t- actually, it's a type of a number of different tools um, that that are used um, in motor vehicle accidents to extricate victims that are in the vehicle. And I remember as a kid, like think, and, and I thought that it must've, it must've started in like the eighties or eighties, but um, because I remember hearing about them as like this new technology, but it actually, they actually were um, uh, designed or invented in the 1960s, early 1960s by this guy named George Hurst. And it actually was due, um, and like a lot of like technology around cars had to do with uh, car racing. And, you know, when people would get in accidents, um, this guy would watch them struggle getting people out of the cars. And so he developed these um, hydraulic tools, they're piston rod hydraulic tools, Um, And the two main ones that are used are cutters and spreaders and spreaders are like reverse scissors. And so the, the ones we got to watch um, being used this week are wireless. They're battery powered, which is huge. I guess for decades, they, they had to be attached to like an engine and they were super loud, which made it very, very difficult to use because if you have a, a, you know, victim is in a car that are worried and you have EMTs who are trying to like, treat a patient patient it's it was hard so these are battery powered but they're huge and heavy and and it takes multiple firefighters to do it and special um, protective gear um, because they're basically like spreading open parts of the car and then can opening the, the roof of the car and um the demonstration that we saw it actually took like 20 minutes for them to get into the car wow. and the roof off. And they said that um, even though the tools are so fantastic and much better than now that they're um, they're cordless, it's actually getting harder and harder to extricate people because cars are getting more efficient. The car technology of like, as they're building cars, they, you know, they're designed to crumple to protect the mm. people in mm-hmm. the car, which is amazing. But then it makes it really difficult to get the people out of the car. That's interesting. Um, yeah. And so uh, I got, I have some video and some photos that I can share. Um, I do think it's um, really fascinating. And, you know, it's something I just never really thought about, even though like I grew up knowing about fire departments, I never really like thought about the fact that it was the firefighters that did the extractions. I didn't know that at all. Right. Yeah. yeah. And, and they, I mean, they're the same people that you go to if like, if say your ring gets stuck on your finger, you can go to the fire department and they can cut it off for you. Did you know that? I didn't know that. I figured you'd go to the hospital. No, you go to the fire department and they can cut it off because they have all these tools to, to deal with motor vehicle accidents that they really are like the first responders for accidents. Um, and so I just, 
it was fascinating. I'm so glad that we as a society have decided to pool our resources to have fire departments. Um, you know, it's amazing. Um, and, you know, just as a personal side, we had a fire in our community like seven years ago. And my kids still talk about the firefighters who came and they're just fantastic. Well, thank you for sharing that. It's really interesting because like you, I also remember hearing about them like as a kid seeming like the first time. And I actually have known people that have been saved by the jaws of life, but I've never seen it in action. Um, and it does sound scary, but it's good to know they're real people behind it. Yeah, real people. And they know how scary they said actually that um, during um, the fire academy, when they're learning how to use the jaws of life, they have to sit in the car for a number of rounds. So they know when we talk about building empathy, there you go, there's our connection, empathy, <laughs> that they have to know what it's like to be inside the car when the, those tools are being used because it's loud and it's scary. Um, and I forgot to say at the beginning was that the the name um, Jaws of Life, it's actually the brand name of a cert, of the Hearst tools, um, but it's because those tools snatch victims from the jaws of death. Oh, wow. Yeah, because Jaws of Life itself sounds a little scary. Yeah, no, but it's because they snatch from the jaws of death. Whoa, I just got like goosebumps. <laughs> Okay, so do you want to uh, talk about what you're loving besides fire departments? <laughs> this week, oh my gosh, this week had some of my favorite moments. Um, it started with the Library of Congress. Oh, yeah. And Dr. Carla Hayden, who tweeted at Lizzo, the world-renowned performer, and invited her to come to the Library of Congress to see the flute collection. Now, those of you who know about the Library of Congress, you know that it in the United States, it's literally the library for our, our government body, our, our national government body. But they have a ton of collections that are things that are not books and manuscripts. I did not know that they have the world's largest flute collection until this week. Yeah. And um, so Lizzo, when she was in town for her concert, she said, yes, I would love to play, look at and play some flutes. And she ended up playing a number of flutes um, from the collection, but including the 200 or over 200 year old um, crystal flute that was made for James Madison and is inscribed with his name. Um, and there, the Library of Congress blog has a fantastic piece about the whole thing, including um, some videos Lizzo got to play in the Library of Congress. She played in the reading room, which nobody's ever, there's never been music in the reading room. Oh, neat. Ever. And um, they asked, there were people studying there and they asked permission and she, they said yes. And she got to play. Can you imagine saying no? Right? <laughs> Lizzo's going to play some historical flutes now. Be like, no, I'm studying. <laughs> And I just like the whole thing, her, the moment was just fantastic. And then it, I mean, I'm not going to go into the controversy. I don't want to give people like non-troversy, non-troversy. Yes. Thank you. It's a non-troversy. There's no controversy about it. This was 100% fantastic. Lizzo is the most talented person I've ever like fangirled. Her ability to play any kind of flute is just amazing. So on Friday... I got to go see her in concert. It actually was the second time I've seen her in concert. And the first time was she was 
playing small venues. Um, she played the House of Blues in Boston. And uh, this time it was the Garden um, in Boston, which is our large hockey and basketball arena. And I went with my friend Brandy. And I have to say it was the most positive, empowering experience. And I had a smile on my face the whole time. And part of the reason was that Lizzo's reaction to the audience was pure joy. Like she looked like she was like surprised and tickled every time we were singing along and just like in awe of this experience. And she's, you know, so happy. Uh, I mean, you don't have to be happy all the time. She actually said that like this week she had been really emotional. And I assume like it's probably because of the non-troversy, um, but that, you know, you don't have to be happy all the time, but she's all about self-love and self-respect and positivity and supporting the people in your life. And that was what the whole concert was about. It was all, you know, I love you. You are valuable. You are perfect and you can do anything. And that really was what I needed this week. And, um, and that was bookended, you know, her experience at the library of Congress and then the concert, just like my heart is full and I think she's amazing. And if you haven't seen her play a flute, I also have a video of that and she is fantastic. I almost said fan effing tastic, <laughs> <laughs> which would be fine. Yeah. Well, then we'd have to put an E on our podcast, we have but that's no okay. Sponsors. Yeah. <laughs> oh, she is amazing. And I know so many people that went to that show in Boston. So it was really kind of fun to see like, you know, on like Facebook or Instagram, like all these friends and I'm like, oh, they're all there. Why aren't I there? <laughs> like, it sounds amazing. There is this hysterical moment too. I guess somebody who worked at the garden left a cardboard standup of Chris Evans and they put a Boston Bruins jersey on it and they brought it out on stage. And she, she was like, who Boston, who did this? Because there's this like ongoing joke about and rumor about her having dating Chris Evans. Uh, it was really really funny and wonderful that's great she's awesome that is awesome well sort of I was gonna say April what do you love well another kind of funny relation uh to what you love because it has to do with a sports stadium oh I'm not a sports fan people like I really (laughs) I'm not like I'm shocked I know. Absolutely shocked. I, it's just not something. Well, you know, lots of people are, but I, it's not something that I really care about. Um, but uh, my husband and I went to a Woo Sox game. Oh. Yeah, we went last Sunday. It was their last game of the season. Uh, for those that don't know, this is our the New England Minor League Baseball League. My, <laughs> the New England <laughs> Minor League Baseball team. Uh, they used to be in Rhode Island in Pawtucket, so they were called the Paw Sox. But in 2021, uh, they opened a new stadium, have a new home at Polar Park in Worcester. Polar is the Polar Seltzer brand, which is based in Worcester. Which I'm totally obsessed with. Oh, I love Polar so much. So that was definitely part of the fun. Um, but, you know, it just had come up. Uh, someone I know had mentioned over the summer, like, going to a minor league game. And I thought, you know, I've never done that. <laughs> and we had really? the Paw Sox. Yeah, we had the Paw Sox in Rhode Island for years. I had heard great things about Polar Park, especially about the food. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm going to admit that's like 90% of why I wanted to go. Uh, because they have a BT's barbecue kiosk. They have Coney Island hot dogs. Uh, so I knew that would be 
definitely like a draw for me. <laughs> definitely need to have a hot dog when I'm at a baseball game. Uh, but you can get general admission seats for $9. That's for adults. That is awesome. Yeah, it might be less for kids even. Um, and speaking of kids, there's this lawn area that you can, um, you know, hang out on, bring a blanket, whatever. And then right next to that is this playground that looked so fun. And right next to that, they're serving like ice cream and stuff. So if you have kids, I don't know. I think this would be like so fun for them. Uh, but, and there are seats. So th- they basically call it the loop. And you can walk around the whole stadium. And there are all these like general admission seating areas. So it's first come, first serve. We did get there a little late. So we didn't really have a place to stake out. But we sat plenty of times. We walked the loop probably two or three times. And we would sit like if we got something to eat or just to rest and watch the game. But to me, part of the fun was the walking around. Yeah, that sounds fantastic. Yeah, I like seeing all the things and I like people watching. And that's another part that I really loved about it is that because it is so accessible for like families and you know, people who don't have a lot of money, like you can go to a game, especially if you didn't, like if you don't have to park, <laughs> if you don't have to pay for parking, but even that's like way less than if you went into Boston. Um, and, you know, if you don't really buy, you know, a lot of the food and stuff like that inside, um, you can really go for, for not a lot of money. You can't get a family of four into a Red Sox game for under a hundred dollars. No way. No way. And you definitely could hear and and they would have fun because it's low key and that's also part of what I liked about it like you know we definitely we sat in the stands sometimes because they weren't the seats weren't full and like nobody's yelling at you no <laughs> like to move like you you know it's just very chill very low key it's super fun and I mentioned the food but like you can get your ice cream in a little plastic helmet. Um, oh, I didn't do that, but no. <laughs> they also had like the hugest cotton candy we had ever seen. Like people were walking around with these things of cotton candy that were like bigger than their heads. <laughs> um, and it's real cotton candy. It doesn't come in a bag. They make it there for you. Um, but like I said, it's just like very like friendly in general. Lots of Worcester pride, which was really That's cool. fun to see. And just like a really easy, easy outing to do. That was totally fun. And I really needed that. You know, at that time, I was feeling like, you know, that we hadn't really done anything like that in so long. And, um, you know, it seemed like as the season starts to change, it's a lot about being inside. Yeah. And so it was just like really nice to like have that experience and have it be, be an easy, easy thing to do. So that's what I loved. I'll have to go next year. That's awesome. Yeah, definitely. I recommend it. We used to, uh, we actually have taken the kids to a minor league game when they used to have a team in Lowell and was really fan. <laughs> Why do I keep wanting to do that? It was really fantastic. <laughs> but here's uh, my trivia about uh, minor league teams. So when I lived in Tucson, I used to go to a lot of minor league games and I was at the game where a pitcher threw a ball that hit a bird. Whoa. And it exploded. Oh my gosh. 
That's horrifying. Oh my gosh. Okay, that's crazy because they allude to an incident like that in A League of Their Own. It, so yeah, there is, and it, well, it, it shows up all the time. Like, you know, ESPN will like pull it up as like top sports moment moments, like all the time. And anytime it shows up in like in the news, I have a friend who will then send me the link because she's like, you were there. And I was like, I know I was, I was like right on the first baseline. And like, we all kind of like gasped. That's yeah. Horrifying. Oh, poor bird. My goodness. But it was a moment. (laughs) It was a moment. (laughs) It was memorable. So memorable. Well, this was fantastic. Fantastic. (laughs) I know you've been wanting to say it. I have been wanting to say it the whole episode. Uh, thank you all for listening. We love that you are here with us. Please do say hi to us. Uh, we would love to hear from you. Also, we haven't mentioned our Patreon and Ko-Fi accounts yet. Um, so if you're still listening <laughs> and you'd like to support the podcast to make it available for everyone um, so we can do more episodes and do things like giveaways and transcripts and all the little things that we pay for your contribution helps a ton. Um, and we do have a few Patreon supporters, but also if you spread the word about the podcast, uh, like the podcast, subscribe, all those things really helps us out and helps us keep it going. So we appreciate that. And we appreciate you. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Bye everyone. Happy reading. Happy reading. Thanks for listening to this podcast is overdue with Christy and April. Bye, everyone. Happy reading. Our podcast music was provided by thepodcasthost.com and Alidu, the podcast maker. Find your own free podcast music over at thepodcasthost.com slash free music. Hi, Johnny Macaroni.